ISOBAR is a global network of best-in-class digital marketing services. We have more than 1,500 digital marketing specialists worldwide, and we're helping brands to develop their global digital marketing strategies. Today, I'm the host of this radio show, and I have the pleasure of bringing on air two people I respect and admire and who I consider to be thought leaders in the Internet space. They both have really interesting ideas and opinions, so I hope you'll enjoy what they have to say. First, we'll hear from Jarvis Coffin, the CEO and founder of Burst Media, one of the Internet's original advertising networks. Jarvis is launching an industry initiative called Citizens Media, so we'll talk about that. After Jarvis, I'm really excited to have David Weinberger come on. David is a best-selling author. Most people in the digital space are familiar with his book, The Clue Train Manifesto, which came out in the late 90s. David continues to generate thought-provoking ideas in our space, and I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation there. Both of these guys are focused on the personalized and empowering aspects of the web as a communications platform for individuals. I know at our agency, we consider the fact that consumers are in control of their own media experiences to be a primary driver in how we target and message to our audiences. So this is a topic I consider greatly important to the industry. Okay. So let's get started and bring Jarvis Coffin on. Um, first, an introduction. Jarvis Coffin is a founder and has been the CEO of Birth since it launched in 1995. Jarvis came from the traditional publishing world where he was a sales leader at organizations such as the Los Angeles Times and USA Today. He's a regular speaker at AdTech and he is a generally well-known industry leader. Hi, Jarvis. Hi, Sarah. Thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here with me today. Um, can you start off by telling the audience a little bit about Burst Media and its position as an advertising venue? What advantage does Burst offer to online advertisers? Sure. So Burst is, is um, 
a part of what we all sort of describe as the ad network space. Um, in our case, we see ourselves really as an advertising sales representative firm, um, which is what we started out, uh, the proposition that we started out with when we founded it in the fall of 1995. And today we sell advertising for about 1,900 web uh, publishers um, and who add up to about 3,500 different websites that we have organized into lots of categories, about 477 different categories of, of information, everything from arts and antiques to web navigation. And um, advertisers are able to access that inventory. We call on the advertisers, and, and we're able to bundle all of those different websites into really a, an almost infinite variety of Packages, depending on what advertisers are trying to do, whether they're trying to reach women of a certain demographic set, whether they're trying to reach average fishermen, um, travelers, people that are interested in healthcare, um, all about trying to get their messages in the right place, in front of the right audience, at the right time, and the you know the the value add benefit that comes at the end of this is just the fact that we can present it to them and they can buy it on a one order one bill basis. Right. Manage the process. You know, um, I think that networks are generally, uh, or they're often looked at as a response mechanism, a response mm. medium. But what you, you talk a lot about the value of Burst as a branding medium. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I, I think that we sell a lot of response advertising, and, and, we, and even the brand advertisers that, that, and the brand advertising that runs across our network um, is certainly informed by lots of kinds of performance metrics that, you know, people have been measuring advertising for generations. Um, but we're passionate about, I mean, we look to the Internet as um, a vehicle to help advertisers reach their best, most important customers. Those are the people that are out there powering their brands. They're the opinion leaders. They're the, they're the word-of-mouth leaders. Um, they're the loyal customers. And loyalty is, you know, all about talking to people in context to the things that interest them. And that's what I think and what Burst thinks uh, the Internet does so beautifully. It is, um, it has, you know, uh, it addresses the unique specialized interests of audiences right down to, you know, whether it's lactose intolerance in children or, you know, planning a trip or shopping for a car. Um, yeah. And that's where brand, I think, can really excel. Yeah. I, you know, some of the birth sites have such a special flavor to them. I've, I've found some of your stories to be fascinating. Mm. They operate as really small businesses, but they seem to, some of them attract really significant traffic. Um, can you give us a couple of examples of these and really bring some life to some of the sites? Well, I mean, sure. The, that's the, that's the, the, you know, our publishers, as I say, over 1,900 of them. Um, around the world, most of them here in the U.S. are, yeah, I mean, you would characterize them mostly as sole proprietorships. These are people that started publishing content online because they could and because they wanted to. So today, I mean, we have math teachers that started, um, you know, we have a woman who runs a website called Cool Math, which generates millions of impressions on a month-to-month basis. She's done it out of her spare bedroom in her house in, in Los Angeles. She's a math professor, um, and she's a passionate teacher. Um, and the website becomes a vehicle for her, and she does you know, very well um, as a publisher. She's a smart publisher. She's committed to it. She devotes countless, as much as you or I devote to our jobs, she devotes to her, her website, and it's not even her full-time job. Um, what motivates all of these guys, and the reason that we love to work for them, is just their keen interest. Um, you know, we represent a site called Snopes, which is an urban legend. It's the largest urban legend site in the world. 
um, 9, 10 million impressions on a month-to-month basis. Two people working out of, you know, their small house north of Los Angeles again, the hills of Los Angeles, with a thriving media enterprise. Uh, that's the model for new media. Uh, that's why citizens' media has become, you know, is so important and near and dear to my heart, because it's, you know, you're not talking about smokestack enterprises. You're talking about the tools, the means of production, and the tools of delivery in the hands of people um, as long as they've got a wire that's coming into their house. Right. Urban legends. That's, that's like the, uh, the kangaroo that's, that, that's uh, like that the, jumps away wearing the guy's jacket and his plane tickets. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, and, you know, these are the things that we all identify with. We can all talk yeah. about it. I mean, you know, how many times is, you know, have ur- urban legends informed the conversations that you have standing around at this industry event or that? So um, it's a brilliant um, and um, an extremely popular web destination. Right. So let's talk about citizens' media. You just brought, brought that up. Um, I know that you've gotten a number of industry players behind this effort, some fairly large players from the agency side as well as um, as well as you know, it just general industry thought leaders and even some from the publishing side. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish with Citizens Media? Well, well the, the thought here is, of course, that, that and it's a, um, uh, the thought here is that to create, get some organization and, and support around um, uh, for the commercial interests of citizen journalists user-generated content. These are terms that, that I haven't invented that, that are sort of widely used now in the open marketplace. Um, and we're still in, sort of working on defining what exactly that means because, I mean, truly, there's all manner of content that gets published online. And, and what it doesn't necessarily mean is just small, you know, because you've got uh, people that uh, produce, you know, voluminous amounts of content, really big websites that otherwise could be considered citizen journalism. But, you know, the walking around idea is that these are people that aren't traditional media, that aren't, um, you know, part of some diverse, global diversified media organization. They're doing it because they can and because they want to. And um, representing the commercial and, and uh, uh, interests of that constituency of, to the marketplace, I think, is really important for both sides. Um, standards, measurement, transparency, accountability, these are all things that advertisers, as they continue to sort of evaluate the Internet and, um, you know, this broad, broad constituency of publisher they, that they don't know anything about, they've got very limited experience working with, you know, who's going to, you know, how are they going to speak for themselves how are they going to warrant to the broader advertising community that their brand and brand advertising messages are safe here? Right. So a group of industry people, Jeff Jarvis has been, um, who's, as I think many people in the listening audience will know, is a, you know, a outspoken advocate of yeah. citizen publishing and uh, is a, you know, an extraordinary blogger at Buzz Machine on his own right, has been a partner in this process. And, you know, we're trying to put together a framework so that... Um, Advertisers can take advantage of what I'm confident are the inherent advantages, the the value of running their messages on not dozens of websites, but tens of thousands of websites. Right. So these are the the small guys banding together to have a major voice uh, for for the industry at large. Small, medium, and big. The word I use, Sarah, is independent. (laughs) These are the independent guys. Right. Um, I mentioned Snopes.com, which is the urban legends. I mean, that 
Snopes will, you know, Comscore Media Metrics will reveal that they show up well up in the top 50 websites, I believe, online. So we're not necessarily talking small. We are talking independent. We're talking passionately independent in some cases, almost militantly independent in some cases, all of which as all of which are characteristics that as, as a culture we value in our media people. And that's present and, and online. There's you know, integrity and, and as I say, um, passion for, for, um, for new media. And, and what they need is a, they need a voice. They need to organize and, and make sure that someone is getting that story out. Right. Well, lucky to have you on this because you're obviously passionate about it. And I'm hearing a lot of people talk about citizens' media, too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let me know what I can do to help there. Um, Let's jump back. I, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to talk about these sites a little bit more, too, as I see them as sort of representing the long tail of media. You know, I don't, I don't know if you agree with that. Um, but where do you think the market, the advertising market is today in making the long tail work for them? Um, they're sniffing around the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that advertisers are inherently risk-adverse, and they always have yeah. been. I mean, I keep pointing to the history of cable television as the sort of most recent example. Um, yes. You know, cable sort of was just barely coming onto the scene when, um, I won't drag you into this, but certainly when I started working back at no, the I end of the 1970s. <laughs> and it's 25 years later that, you know, cable really had, you know, broke through to the top and, and displaced broadcast really as sort of the giant media um, uh, entity. Yeah. That's how long it takes. And I think that the long tail, I think that um, you know, the, the new media marketplace, as, as it's reflected in the long tail, lots and lots and lots of unique, highly vertical, you know, smaller, uh, independent publishers that stretches out as far as the eye can see, I think it's going to take a while for advertisers to embrace that. But mm-hmm. they've got to. Because the news headlines at the end of last year is about, you know, big websites being sold out. And I think the consensus is still that a lot of, you know, you know uh, uh, advertisers spending increasing amounts of money in environments that are already cluttered are not doing anything for their reach and frequency curves. Um, and yet, the evidence is also that, that, that people use the Internet, that it's, you know, saturated the households of the U.S., yeah. Um, its penetration levels are, you know, can't be ignored. Okay, so what are they doing? And if you pay attention to what consumers are doing online and how they're using the Internet, they're clearly populating that long tail. They're, they clearly look at that long tail as what, you know, the, the, um, the upside to them of new media. And I think advertisers, um, you know, are starting to hear that message, yeah. helped along by radio programs like this, perhaps, we hope. Um, and uh, they're starting to allocate their dollars in that direction. I think you're right. Um, I, you know, the, it's a funny analogy to cable. I remember one of the CEOs of a, a big advertising company in Boston saying, if you want to hide from the law, go on cable. <laughs> so, you know, just really clearly refuting it and look at it today. So right. I'm hoping you're going to move in that direction. Um, also, I mean, there's been much ado about categories of online advertising being sold out, which I'm sure, you know, is... The, the, just laughable to you and to me as well. But, you know, just recently, for instance, I read that 86% of automotive content is sold out for 2006. Mm -hmm. Is there an abundance of inventory out there from your perspective? 
How well, there is. If you, there's a in the in the automotive category. There's a ton of 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 content out there available to help these marketers if they see the internet as something other than reaching in market auto buyers. I mean, everyone's well aware of the fact that you know whatever the most recent numbers is, but that you know the the one that keeps rattling around in my head is that eighty percent of people go online to shop for a new car, and the auto advertisers have that covered. You know, they're in those, you know, well represented in those relatively few in market online entities. Yeah. But we know this about auto brands, right? They cater to lifestyles. I mean, if you look what rolls up into an automotive brand, into a family minivan, into a convertible Mustang, into a Jaguar or a Lexus or a premium brand, they're selling aspiration. They're selling attributes that, that, you know, can only be properly served if they're, you know, taking those things and putting them in those environments where people are catering to their personal aspirations, seeing themselves in the same context that the brands, the auto brands, want to see them. This is what they've done on, you know, in magazines for with great success for years. They need to start to avail themselves of the enormity of opportunity that, you know, that, that opportunity that exists online. And, um, I think they will. I think they want, again, to get comfortable with the fact that, that um, it can be transparent, that, that they, you know, with relative ease, they can, you know, they, they can rely on knowing where their ads are and that, you know, these are reputable places and that they conform to certain standards from an advertising standpoint. Um, all of that's possible. You know, all of those questions can be answered today. Um, and again, you know, hopefully citizen media initiatives such as the one we're talking about are going to help, um, uh, help answer those questions. I hope so. Is, yeah. is, is Burst, um, use, are you using your network to uh, deliver um, behavioral targeting across the different sites that, that you have? Can you can buy by categories. You know, how, how many people are taking advantage of the behavioral aspects of, of what you have to, to offer? Um, we have a number of advertisers that are using behavioral um, uh, targeting across our network, which in our case is enabled by Dakota. Um, we're very close partners with them. So, um, you know, they're the ones that have lit up the burst network so that we can sell, bring behavior targeting to advertisers. Um, and it has been, um, you know, it's been a very effective uh, feature to um, uh, you know, bring to market, you know, to enhance the value of advertising across any number of our websites. So, I mean, Burst reaches, you know, one in three people online in the U.S., according to Comscore Media Metrics. So, you know, you can have a fairly high degree of confidence that, um, you know, if you see people who are surfing to travel websites inside the Burst network, um, you can target them behaviorally elsewhere inside the Burst network with an expectation that, that many of them are going to show up there. So it's been very successful. But it's also like, you know, it's like geographic targeting. It's like day part targeting. It's like, um, um, you know, any number of the different variables that, that we can and others and, mo- and most can uh, yeah. attach to advertising schedules and, and um, help them dial into their best customer. Cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, what's your wish? If you had one thing to evangelize to this audience, <laughs> what would that be? Well, I, I'd have to say that, um, you know, maybe it's not a wish, right? It's a vision, okay? Mm-hmm. Or it's a fantasy, depending on who you're talking to. But my idea is that um, advertisers, and, you know, that's inclusive probably of all of them, but, 
you know, let's especially talk to the brand advertisers that are out there, particularly the big ones. Yeah. You know, it 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 seems to me that um, you know they should aspire to, as I said earlier in this broadcast, have their messages not on a relative handful of places, but on thousands of places, because that's what the internet has has arrived to do. I mean, the biggest problem that, you know, my customers had through years of selling print advertising was, you know, how do I, I can't get really close, how do I get even closer to, you know, the composition of your magazine that I know represents my best customer, that 30% of the audience that is actually, you know, um, my best, most important customer. And, you know, careful what you wish for, because you might get it. And in this case, (laughs) it shows up as the Internet. And it manifests itself in thousands and thousands of highly vertical specialty content websites. So now you have the chance to actually feature your messages in environments where it's really about 100% composition. And you can scale that on a one-order-one-bill basis using any variety of vendors. So my wish, my vision, you know, my fantasy of this is that someday we see, um, you know, advertisers thinking in new media terms, not old media terms, distributed media terms, not smokestack media terms, Um, lots of places, not just a few big places. Yeah, that's interesting. You and I have both encountered, um, I think, some fairly conservatively minded um, mm. uh, clients that, that worry about where their advertising shows up, that they want to really check off on every single site that mm. might be out there. Is that unrealistic, do you think? Or is, do you think that, that people are just going to have to change their attitudes or be a well, little... I don't know. I, I think it's perfectly realistic to expect... Um, and I and I have I think advertisers have every right to expect that their messages are going to um, that they're not going to be offended, nor are their brands going to be undermined by um, their media schedules, um, okay. online or offline. Um, having said that, uh, I think advertisers. You know, there's an awful lot of homogeneity. You know, media has been so homogenous. Is that the word? Um, <laughs> homogenous, yeah. Homogenous. I mean, you know, when you look at the cuts that, and, and, and you think in terms of how many marketers think of their audiences, um, you know, it can be, it, it, it can, it defaults to average, you know, in a lot of cases. And I think that advertisers do need to think and about taking you know, being a bit more gritty with their media schedules and taking a bit more risk and falling back on the fact that real people, that the authentic voice of their consumer um, is, uh, is, is good, not bad, but that that authentic voice can have an edge to it. I, I mean, think you're you know, totally right. Yep. D- you know, stand outside. I mean, if you're if you're an advertiser and you're thinking and you want to think constructively about you know this issue, do some store checking. Go stand outside a Walmart. Go stand outside a Target. Go stand outside an auto dealership and look at the people and the stories that are just of you know that that get told just by you know the you know what they say and what they look like and how they act and what they drive up in you know come to terms with you know what it is to think in terms of your consumer your end user as a real person yep. and the internet is um 
is um, is absolutely cagers to that kind of authentic cagers That's to that kind a, of authenticity. A really compelling way to look at it, and I think that your thoughts here are going to be echoed by my next guest, David Weinberger. Jarvis, we're going to wrap up with okay. you. It's yeah. always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Thank you so much for being here, and and I think that Citizens Media is a really important initiative, and I wish you luck with that. And please, again, let me know what I can do to help. Um, we're going to cut to break, and I will be back with David Weinberger. 3 a.m. traveling to a conference in Oklahoma City. Steve Talbot's Ford Escort radiator hose bursts near the town of Hooker. He types Hooker Escort Hookup into another local search engine's one-box search. He has a great time that he can't expense. TrueLocal.com. Two boxes. One click. Great results. It's all about links, baby. Content is king, but links are what you need to get you those all-important organic search listings. Float to the top of your keyword listings within the major portals while driving targeted traffic to your website at the same time. Work with a company with a proven track record for delivering results for thousands of individual website owners and major Fortune 500 companies. TextLinkAds.com is your source for securing relevant links. Baby, textlinkads.com. A rose by any other name would still be the same. Move over, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN-accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R. Com. More than a name. Brady Residence. Hi, this is Mark with WebmasterRadio.fm. I'm calling about the new music we're playing on Monday night. Well, the songs are the way they are nowadays. You can't hear the words well enough to understand that what you would have heard is something you wouldn't have understood anyway. I agree. That's why Monday nights we're turning back the hands of time to the sounds of the 60s with Magical Mystery Monday. Wow. Boy. Groovy. Wow. All right. Wait a minute, who else is on this line? Jan Brady. Hi, Jan. Poor thing, too bad she's a loser. A loser? Yeah. That's exactly what I am, a born loser. Oh, well, don't say that. You've got to have confidence in yourself. I do have confidence. I'm confident that I'm a no-talent loser. Well, if you want to build your confidence, then log on to webmasterradio.fm, because we've got a great lineup on Monday with Strike Point at 3 p.m., Wizards of Web at 4, and Magical Mystery Mondays at 8 p.m. I hope you've learned something from all of this. Yes, that web. Webmaster Radio is the destination for education and entertainment. You are the grooviest. Wow, you can ride my range anytime. Um, uh, no thanks. Uh, I really got to go now. Now back to... You're connected now with your host. Okay, we're back, and I'm here with David Weinberger. Um, as I said earlier, Dave, David is the author of the Clue Train Manifesto. Um, he also authored the book Small Pieces Loosely Joined, and he writes a well-known blog called Joho. Um, he also contributes regularly to such, such prestigious sources as the Harvard Business Review, USA Today, Wired, Salon, The Guardian, 
Esther Dyson's release 1.0 and O. Oh, he's also a regular commentator on National Public Radio. <laughs> I could spend the whole interview on just your bio, David. Let's not. <laughs> By, By the way, way I, I, I recently met Esther Dyson, and when I told her I knew you, she said, Oh, you is, must be cool. Train is, uh, so, happy to be in your presence today. Um, and thanks for joining me with AdTech. Sure, thanks for having me. Okay. So um, let's begin by talking about the Clue Train concepts. Um, this was really a favorite book for me, and I think it, it was a wake-up call at the time for marketers when it came out. Um, it speaks to the consumer being in control of how and when they choose to pay attention to marketing, what they will and won't believe, and how they may even contribute to you know, the market about a company or product. It's kind of scary stuff for marketers. How are these concepts playing out today, do you think, compared to when the book was written? Um, the book was written in 99, and uh, I should mention that since my co-authors are vindictive bastards, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, I, I'm a co-author of it. Right. Um, it seems to me, that I've noticed that a resurgence of interest in Train, which is, after all, was six years old, among marketers and PR people in the past year, um, which is... A little surprising to me, but gratifying. And the basic idea of it was that for, oh, about 100 years, businesses have attempted to control their customers and their employees and their, their partners by selectively releasing information. The best source of information about a company was the company. So you could tell your, your customers, by the way, I hate the term consumer, but uh, you could tell your customers what they wanted. Uh, because well okay um, uh, what you wanted them to know and you were in control of that but then with the web um, and so you, the notion that you you could um, release messages you could message people boil down what you want them to know to a simple line or jingle or thought and so pound it into their heads over and over and over again uh, that seemed to work okay although it generated a re- a resentment of marketing that is is omnipresent i mean even marketers when they leave their their building um, are resent the marketing that's being done to them the messaging sure with the internet customers are in touch with one another the market markets that had been collections of people that were disconnected, um, could be accurately characterized through mere demographics. These markets now are talking with one another. They're, they're, they're connected through conversation. And it turns out, not surprisingly, that connected markets, connected customers, know more about the business than the business does. They know the products more intimately because they're using them, and customers talk more honestly than... Right that companies do. And so it turns out that to be literally the case that customers know more about business than the businesses do, and thus the businesses lose, and marketing in particular, loses its, its strategy for controlling customers. This can't be done anymore. Right. I, it, it really comes down to the way you, the way you speak to your customers, too. I, I heard about a study recently um, that, that, that the finding was that people were saying there are really two types of voices voices from companies, which we don't trust, and voices from people, which we do trust. So what do you, what do, you do? I mean, what do you do as a marketer? How, how do you talk not as a company? <laughs> how, can you, you know, how can you get to a point where you can be believed and liked as, if you're a brand or a product? The, the notion 
that voice is central to the appeal of the web, which is appeal of the web is phenomenal. If you consider the way it has already wrenched our, our the world's cultures around in just the course of ten years, I mean that is a phenomenal attractor. That much of the appeal of that comes from the ability of people to speak in their own voice and to hear actual human voices, which we lost, uh, we, we stopped getting used to that in the media. Uh, because we would, and especially marketing media, because we would hear tightly controlled voices that were speaking in this this weird way, this weird language that has nothing to do with how humans talk. I mean, the product brochures, <laughs> typical product brochure, just has nothing to do with how people actually talk, much less what their their engagement with with the actual product. So the web gave us gave us everyone an ability to talk in our own voice, to talk like human beings. We judge others on the web as we do in real life, in real life conversation to a large degree, by how their voices sound. And obviously I don't mean, is their voice high or low? I mean by voice, the way that we are in public, and everything, how you speak, how you dress, what words you use, yeah. what, your, what your sense of humor is. So how do companies do this? It's not certain that they can. Companies aren't people. <laughs> Oh no! Well, okay. I, I, you know, it's not guaranteed anywhere that uh, that that companies, that organizations, uh, can talk like humans. I mean, that. Um, well, there are some do you think that do. there's something to letting the humans talk? Now, I, you know, I know you were associated with the the Howard Dean for President campaign, um, which was, you know, obviously very viral in nature, but but it did have a source. I mean, there were. There were people at Mission Control, isn't that right? I mean, can you talk about that a little bit and what you know how that was successful, or you know what some of the what some of the gotchas might have been too? Um, sure, I mean, and and it is a good example because there are things that that you can you can do. Um, first of all, the sense in which the Howard Dean campaign was successful, we got to be just a little careful using that term since as last time I was president. <laughs> Although I think he became better known because of that campaign much much faster. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so uh, the, key to, the key to the campaign, what the campaign did on the Internet, which drove a lot of its, uh, its success until it failed, um, <laughs> you know, it, it got 17% market share uh, in, in, in Iowa, which is, you know, pretty good for if you had a product that was... Anyway, so... Um, the key, the explicit key, I mean, this, this campaign manager, Joe Trippi, um, thought about this very explicitly, that the campaign had to give up some, some control of its message mm-hmm. in order to gain something. And what they gained was the trust and, 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 and mania of the supporters who were a- enabled um, to a large degree through the through the web, through the campaign's website, we're enabled to find each other, talk with one another, engage with one another in the, in the real world, and form real bonds. So, but to do that, the Dean campaign did not have a message of the day. It, it purposefully encouraged uh, users to talk about the campaign in their own words. So when there was a letter-writing campaign uh, to write to voters in Iowa, there weren't templates. Right. Uh, they That's weren't a pretty radical what, departure. Isn't it from from the way you're supposed to do political campaigning or oh, it's, marketing? Absolutely, it's um, it's it's upside down and inside out. I mean, all of political campaigning is about controlling the message, keeping the candidate on message. Whatever the question is, the candidate will answer with the with the message of the day message, and 
God forbid the candidate for one moment should vary and go off message, we might actually hear what the candidate thinks and how he sounds. And that would be, of course, a disaster. So they don't let that happen. <laughs> and, that, and it's a disaster for democracy. Um, so one of the things the Dean campaign did famously, and it's something that bears directly on what companies can do, is they set up a, they set up a weblog. Right. And the person who wrote the weblog was this 31-year-old kid um, who started out not officially connected with the campaign of this, handed it to him and said, here, you write on our, our site every day. You do the blog. You sign your own name. No, it's not pretend. Let's pretend Howard Dean wrote it. No, it's, it's Matthew Gross. You sign your own name and talk about the campaign from the inside. So campaigns have never had this type of voice before. They had the candidate and the press secretary, but they didn't have a human being who was freed and encouraged to talk about the things that matter to him or her in his or her own voice. And the Dean campaign did that, and there was an outpour. Of, oh, my God, there's somebody in politics who's speaking like a human a being. Person, what right. can we do? So do you, do you think that, that companies can do this with their products and brands? Do you think it's just too, too crazy, too radical? I know it is very scary for a lot of companies and brands to think about what consumers might say. Or, I'm sorry, not consumers. Customers <laughs> might say um, about them if just unleashed or if, even if they got behind it. There is this whole concept of user-generated content, which we're really interested in, actually. It, companies are trying to find ways to get the consumer customer to participate in their message. Have you tuned into that at all? Yeah, some. I mean, the, the, the fact is that um, user-generated content, also known in this case as blogging or conversation or emails, people talking with one another, happens already. This is not yeah. something the company can control or needs to initiate. It needs to figure out first how to listen, and second of all, to figure out how it can join this without have it with, without trying to control it because I, I talk with companies and because I'm a marketing consultant and uh, um, I know the first thing once they get the idea say of blogging and blogging is just one particularly good example but once they get the idea of it their first reaction is great how can we control these conversations how can we get our messages in if somebody says something negative how can we turn it to our advantage and the answer is you cannot do it unless you want to look like a control freak a totalitarian and, and somebody who doesn't trust their customers yeah you can't do it. You can't go to a conversation at the local PTA barbecue where people are arguing about sports or about uh, whatever and go up and sort of work your your company message in there. You look like a phony yeah, and an idiot. You certainly, you certainly can't pretend to be a, a customer out there or you know, just a person. I, I think that anybody who tries to do that gets very quickly revealed. Um, but, I, you know, there is the concept of putting sort of creative tools into the, the people's hands to see what they do with it around your message, creating contests, things like that. It's kind of a way of getting people more deeply involved um, with the company and maybe liking the company a little bit more. Sure. I mean, anything, almost anything, as long as it's ethical, as long as it contributes to the ecology, is, is worth trying. But the I guess my reaction would be is your message is what you want other people to be saying about you. Why would we want to talk with you if you're trying to get us to say something? This doesn't happen in, in real conversation where you try to get us to say something. You're going to be incredibly boring if nothing else. Why do you hear your message? <laughs> okay. Well, um, I'm not sure what to do with that information, although 
I think that you have some specific advice around the PR um, function, or I know that you consult to PR agencies, and search seems to be a major topic for you, too. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit, bit about some of your thoughts and ideas in that realm? Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you for letting me uh, rant, by the way. No, I love uh, to hear you rant. <laughs> I will try to dial it That's back. why we have you on the show. You're a ranter. <laughs> um, search is obviously hugely important. Everybody knows that because it is, in essence, the way in which things get published now. So if you write something on the web, you know, that's fine. You're free to post it, but it's unlikely anybody will find it unless it shows up in the search rankings of the major engines. So um, I guess there are two things I want to say. I'll try to be brief. The first is that I know, once again, that the marketing impulse is, ooh, how can I... How can I get my my company's listings up high in the in the search results? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously a wide variety of ways of optimizing. Some of them are just plain good sense. Um, at the other end of the spectrum are ones that actually befoul the environment because the search engines work for us for for us users because they, to one degree or another, reflect the set of users' interests. So Google famously will boost a page if many people are linking to it, which is a type of voting with your feet, and it works pretty well. Yeah. If a PR or marketing company purposely goes out and tries to increase their clients' rankings through ways that, are, that subvert the sort of vote-by-your-feet democracy that the search engines enable, they degrade, for us users, the search engine results. They're helping their clients, but they're giving us results that search engines now are giving us results that don't actually reflect the merit and interests of, of the page. Now, that's, do you see a difference between a, a PR company? Um, are, you're talking about getting topics high in the listing versus companies getting their sites high up in the listings for categories that are relevant to them. Because in my mind, I mean, you know, search is something obviously that is is a very active, you know, marketing, um, you know, tool. And and most companies, I mean, we work with a lot of companies that are very focused on getting high in the listings. Although you kind of have to be true to your your brand and who you are to get up high in a listing, you know, for keywords that are relevant to you. I mean, you you kind of have you have to pick the keywords that are right, and then it has to be you know, an important part of who you are. So it's not exactly, um, you know, it's, it's not an untruth being, being high in the listings. But are you, you talking about a very specific um, type of search listing? Well, the, um, the, the obvious example, so I want to be clear. I mean, there are lots and lots of things you can do to, make, to optimize your, 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 your pages so that they will, in fact, it will be clearer to the engines what they're about, and all that's fine. So I'm not saying all search yeah. engine optimization. Very commercial, right. <laughs> um, but there are also things, fam- famously Google bombing, in which um, you create sites to link to the one that you want to um, have boosted. Um, yeah. And, yeah. All I, here's, a, here's a fundamental thing that I'm saying, that um, we all work uh, at jobs or at home, um, and we... We care also, I think all of us, I'm going to say, we all care that our environment, our physical environment, not be befouled. And that mm-hmm. actually comes before the values of, of, of our work. We've got to make sure we don't screw up the planet so badly that we all die, our children die. Yeah. In the same way, 
the web is an environment, and for me, that comes first. Protecting that comes first, and and uh, helping a, a company um, get more, make more money, absolutely is secondary. And I think that should be true for marketers and PR people and anybody in business, just as it's true for not following our air. Yeah, hmm. that's interesting. I don't know if you read um, John Battelle's book, The Search, but you know, the, it's it's interesting to delve into the Google culture to understand what comes first for them, and it really does seem to be making search relevant uh, for users. And you know, I think that they really really are about having the systems that don't allow people to game them so much or you you know you you have to follow a certain set of rules i don't know you know i don't know if that's that's your opinion or if you think it's all going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> i think both i actually am a fan of google as an ethical com- uh, company even though well, there's, right. there's certainly controversy uh, around their decision <laughs> to uh, ban words the sense help the chinese censor um, searches. Uh, I think it's a very tough issue, um, yes. I, I, to which there is no good answer. Yeah, no, definitely. So let's talk about Joho. You are a blogger, um, and you've been a blogger for a long time. Actually, Joho is one, really one of the first yeah. major blogs on, on the web, Journal of the Hyperlinked Organization. Wasn't that what it was? Um, and you've had a lot of people, a lot of thought leaders come to share their ideas this is a lot of your time. You you take a lot of time and effort and energy to run this blog. But as far as I can tell, this isn't something, it's not a money-making venture for you. So why do you do it? What's What motivates you to do uh, to, to be a blogger and, and to do Joho? Well, I, so I, I, I want to say that, um, you know, I'm an exceptional case. I'm a writer, and so Joho serves a purpose that doesn't serve to other people. But the key thing is that everybody in this case is a special case. I mean, there's no reason... The, why people write write blogs is like asking why do people say things. Uh, you know, they've got a whole <laughs> range of reasons. So for me, it's a it's a good place to try out ideas. Um, yeah. I'm writing a book, for example, and I, I write some columns and stuff, and because um, I'm a writer, and so the blog is a really good place to try out an idea in a few paragraphs or, and have people snack it down and and learn from it, and that's what I end up writing is is better because of it. Um, it's also a it, it's not just writing. This is a big part of my social world, my huh. friends. I know through blogging, and I know them through blogging because I've responded to things Why on their podcast. Why thinks you're cool, right? <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. I, I had said earlier that I, I met Esther Dyson and. and uh, and I, I mentioned that I knew you, and she said, "Oh, you must be really cool." So, <laughs> Joho offers maybe a coolness too. <laughs> no, well, I, it makes you a celebrity, kind of. It's the funny thing about weblogs is that they make you a celebrity to everybody who reads it, whether it's it's five people or it's five hundred thousand people. And by the way, I'm much closer to the bottom end of that scale. Um, <laughs> so, people who have have a handful of readers when when you when they when you meet one in the real world or you get email it's it's exa- it's you're talking to an author i mean you're you're famous you can be famous to 15 people <laughs> although it seems to be much more than that i mean it i think joho is, seems to be a popular site i hear a lot of people talk about it well that's that's nice i i 
make it studiously a point not to check its its statistics. I think it's a bad thing, at least for me. Yeah. You know, I, I, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter how many people read it. I would be writing it if if five people were reading it. Um, it's a relationship that I have with with people who I, I get to know. Right. They get to know and me. I mean, it's a very blogging is a very intimate social activity. Well, blogging wasn't even around when you wrote the Clue Train, which is interesting because you know that the the whole blogging and blogosphere are you know some of the biggest carriers of the concepts of the the Clue Train. So um, anyway, I think it's it's it is changing the media landscape. Um, you're working on a new book. Everything is miscellaneous. How's that going? Can you can you give us a little preview of you know some of the concepts that you're going to talk about in that? Uh, yes, it's uh, it comes out in the winter of '07 from Times Books. Um, the the idea is that um, as it, that we've organized our ideas and our knowledge, and it's, I'm particularly interested in knowledge, but we've organized the ideas and knowledge the same way that we've organized our laundry. We have the same basic principles for organizing those two things. It's been true for 2,500 years. Um, And now we're digitizing. Basically all information is is going online. Um, And when you do that, you want to come up with new ways of organizing it because the old ways are way, way too limited. So we are. We're busily inventing. It's a hugely interesting time. We're inventing new basic principles for how we organize ideas. Well, if you do that then you're changing the shape of knowledge, the, uh, the authority of knowledge, who owns it. Well, just the basic nature of what we know is changing. And that has effects on, um, I, I think, on uh, institutions of knowledge, including not just education, which is the obvious one, and libraries, but also business. Because business is about, frequently, more and more, as we all know, enabling customers to get easy access to your information. Mm-hmm. Well, those are the basic principles by which companies organize information, I believe, are changing. And thus, yeah. the relationship to that information is changing. That's very cool. Are you you're sort of midway through writing this book? Are you using Joho as a way to, uh, to still develop out some of the ideas? Yeah, the, um, my previous book, I posted the draft every day on, in public on my site and had discussion boards. And that was an interesting experiment. Um, this one... <laughs> I'm actually, for various reasons, I can't really explain that well. I want to have the door closed as I'm writing. So I'm writing it in private, but I constantly am trying out um, ideas. And and sometimes just plain asking for help. Does anybody know about? And what the web in general knows is basically everything humans know. So it's it's an an exciting way to, to, to develop ideas. Yep. Yeah, well, it sounds really interesting, and I, you know, I, I hope it enjoys the same success that you know some of your other endeavors have. Um, we're going to wrap it up today, but thank you so much for for joining, David. Thank you so much for having me. All right, thanks so much for joining at Tech Radio. I'm Sarah Fay, President of Vice of our U.S., and we hope you'll tune in next Thursday at twelve o'clock. Yankee, yeah. And his beautiful coast.